This is the Today's RDH Dental Hygiene Podcast. The podcast for curious and passionate dental hygienists. Hello, Kara Vavrosky here from Today's RDH. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. Today, I am joined by Kim Trottier, who is a dental therapist and the founder of Culturally Committed. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Kim. Thank you for having me. Yes. So I am just thrilled to be doing this interview with you because you've taken dental care and healthcare a step further because you saw a need. Mm -hmm. um, before we get to that, though, can you please tell me a bit about yourself, who you are, your background, how you came to do the work you do? Sure. So, so yeah, my name is Kim Trache. And so a bit of a bit of context for me, I am of settler ancestry. Um, I, my roots extend to Germany and England. Um, I grew up on Treaty 2 territory, which is colonially known as Brandon, Manitoba. So kind of in the center of Canada. And so those are the traditional, that's a traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Cree, Oji Cree, Assiniboine, Dakota, and Dene peoples and the homeland of the Métis Nation. But today I'm joining you from my home, which is located on the traditional unceded territory of the Sanawas people, which are part of the Coast Salish people. And so we've lived here on this territory for the past nine years as uninvited guests. And it's only as I've navigated the work of understanding our, our collective history that I've come to realize the gravity of our circumstances. So it's my hope that as I do this work, I learn what I can do to bring forward change and make a difference. And so um, thank you for inviting me to join you today, Kara. Uh, so I am here because I'm a registered dental therapist. And uh, for those of you who don't know where Stanawa's traditional territory is, I live on Vancouver Island, uh, which is an island just off the coast, west coast of Canada. And I'm a dental therapist. So in my role, I work exclusively with First Nations people on and around Vancouver Island. I travel to very remote places, um, places that don't have access to services. And so I bring services to communities. So that is a little bit about me. I love that. And it's really interesting because even though you are from Canada, um, this isn't a Canada thing, which is why I really wanted to talk to you today, because like for me, I could jump on the freeway five minutes away, shoot up a couple hours, get on a ferry and literally go say hello to you today. Mm -hmm. So this is not just a Canada thing. This is not just a Vancouver B or a BC thing, or it's, I, I want everyone to be aware that what I think you're going to be talking about today um, ha has a much wider, wider reach. Um, so you have a perspective that not all of us, unless you are a First Nations person, have regarding the systemic racism that impacts First Nations people. Can you give me a bit of an overview of those impacts? Mm -hmm. Well, first, perhaps I'll just back up a little bit and just share with you that um, I've worked with First Nations people now for the past nine years. But prior to that work, I really was very ignorant about the systemic racism and various barriers that did impact First Nations people. I really grew up in a, a bubble of whiteness. Um, and so my reality, my lens was colored by everything that surrounded me, which were families that were like me, who had belief systems like I did, challenges that I had, experiences that I experienced. So my lens was very small and I didn't see 
the harms that impacted other people. Um, so through my work, it has really expanded my understanding. And it's been a journey. I, I really didn't understand early on um, the things that I was doing in my practice that were actually causing harm to my patients. And that was a really tough pill to swallow because I think as clinicians, um, we all want to provide good care. And so to realize that even though I had great intentions and I was really bringing my heart and all my good feelings to my work, there were things that I was saying and doing that were causing harm and I was oblivious to it. I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> you did. You absolutely did. And, and this is exactly why I want to talk to you today. Um, so let's, let's start with terminology. I noticed you saying First Nations, and that's the word, that's the terminology I used because I have talked with you before, um, <laughs> instead of Indigenous people or Native people. Can you explain why that is? Sure. So what I've come to realize, and this is all my learning too, is that Indigenous is actually an umbrella term. And so here in Canada, there are three distinct groups that fall under the that umbrella of Indigenous. And so those three categories are First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. So when I talk about First Nations people, I'm talking about um, First Nations are specifically the communities that I am providing service to. So, um, so there's many different nations that fall under, uh, fall into family categories. So um, as I mentioned in my intro, this is the home that I live in is on Coast Salish territory. Um, the, the nation that is where I live is the, is the Stanawas people. So, um, you know, it's always good to, when you are referring to a group to be as specific as you can. So um, that's why I, I say the people where I live, there's First Nations, the, the nation is the Coast Salish and the specific nation here is the Sinanawas. So it's really good to have awareness of the lands that you're residing on. Um, and that's just a way of showing respect to the people whose land we are occupying, because these are, in fact, stolen lands. I that makes really good sense to me. And um, in it, something I can take with myself moving forward. Um, in the United States, this is a newer requirement for some state dental boards. Um, they are making mandatory for continuing education courses on cultural competency. Now, you use the terms cultural safety and cultural humility, not cultural competency. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what those terms mean and why you don't use the term cultural competency? Sure. So cultural competency, the word competent demonstrates that we are showing, uh, you know, excellence in something. We are When we are competent, we are doing it well. Um, when it comes to serving, you know, other communities, I can never be an expert in somebody else's culture. That's just not reality. And so to say that I'm culturally competent isn't really accurate. Um, it's really important to approach our work with humility and recognize that our learning is never going to be done. And so even though I've done this work for nine years and I'm fully invested in it, um, I will never be an expert in somebody else's experience. Um, the nations that cover Turtle Island or what we what First Nations people call North America, um, they're so diverse. I could never 
even hope to be an expert in all of the cultures that are represented across this nation. So um, I don't say cultural competency, I'm striving for cultural humility. And so that is really um, kind of the, the intention of cultural humility is to acknowledge ourselves as humble learners and to just always be open to feedback, um, putting our egos aside and and just be open hearted and and keeping our, our well, I feel like I'm on a tangent. <laughs> No. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, that's, that's what cultural humility is. Um, cultural safety, what I, how I explain cultural safety, cultural safety is an environment and an approach to care that is defined as safe by the person who's impacted by the services they're receiving. So I can't say that I'm a culturally safe provider because cultural safety is really the lens of the person receiving services. So I might provide culturally safe care to one person, um, but not to another. And because it really depends on how that person receives the services. So it's not my lens, it's theirs. That's what cultural safety is. I, that was very eye-opening when you first explained that to me, because that could go to any cultural person a- anywhere you are, because no matter where you are, you're going to treat patients I would, I think it's safe to assume that are not from the same background or culture or religion or have the same views, even politically mm-hmm. as you. And so it's, I think the awareness there, I think that's important. And it's, and I'll go on a tangent here because I think it's the pits because like today's RDH is an accredited CE provider. We are bound by the terminology of those accreditation bodies and by the state dental boards. So now that I have been made aware of this, thank you. I still have to use that word, even though I know it's not the best. Well, we might see change coming forward because the terms cultural safety and cultural humility, this is really emerging language in British Columbia. And so as we look eastward across Canada, many regulators are still using the terms cultural competency. So I think it's probably something that we will see evolving as people get a get um, um, a better grasp of the importance of that terminology. So I suspect it might be that way for now, but I don't think it will be that way forever. I like your positivity because I hope <laughs> so, because now that I am made aware, just a sliver, um, it's like, oh, holy molar um so there there's (laughs) there's that so what are some of the adaptations you have incorporated into your practice based on cultural safety and humility that i think a lot of us could maybe learn from sure um so first i just want to express that um the, feed, the, the the information I'm going to be sharing with you is based on my experiences here in this specific region, um, but it's really important to recognize that many nations have different values, um, different ways of communicating, uh, and so it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's a term called pan-Indigenous, and so that's basically trying to paint all Indigenous people with the same brush, and it's really important to recognize that nations have very um, specific values um, and practices. So what I'm gonna be explaining to you are things that I've learned in my practice in this specific region. So one of the things that I have brought back to my practice um, is was based on a teaching that I received from my dear friend and mentor, Jared Questenahan Williams, and Jer- Jared is from uh, Cowitson. Um, so Jared once explained to me the importance of speaking slowly and allowing time for silence. 
Um, so in healthcare, I'm I'm sure this is not an uncommon experience. Um, time goes very quickly, and we feel a lot of pressure to be productive and to maximize the time that we have with our patients. Um, but what I was noticing in my practice is that. Oftentimes people speak slowly, especially the elders in the communities that I'm serving. And so um, Jared explained to me that um, elders speak slowly, not because they're slow and they don't think they don't speak slowly because they think that I am slow, um, that they're that words really do have a lot of power and importance. And so elders will take their time to choose their words carefully because they understand the power of those words. And so oftentimes when there is silence happening, they are thinking about what they want to say and how they want to say it. And Jared even went so far to say is sometimes elders will choose not to say anything and risk saying the wrong thing. So in dentistry, in my experience, um, for example, when I'm inviting somebody <laughs> to my chair and I'm meeting them for the first time, um, sometimes if somebody's speaking slowly, I'll, I would be prompting them along um, or finishing their sentences. It's embarrassing to admit, but it is true. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. And what I have learned from Jared is when I am doing that, I am actually disrespecting them. And when they are speaking slowly, they are honoring me. So uh, when I realized what he was saying and the importance of that, I, I did feel a lot of shame. Like I felt really embarrassed that the things that I was doing was causing harm. And so um, now in my practice, I really try to let those moments of silence hang. And that is very difficult for me because I, it, for me, silence equals discomfort. And so I'm trying to like keep the conversation going and be chatty and responsive. Um, but now I, now that I know how important silence is, I really, really try to let those moments of silence hang and, and just allow time for, for contemplation. So that is something really simple that I have learned from one of my mentors here in this region. I think that is such a good point because I think all of us, whether you're an assistant, a dentist, a dental therapist, a hygienist, we're in a hurry. We have a certain amount of time and you're right. If someone isn't get to, getting something out or if they're saying, we have to be that charismatic, that, you know, whatever, but it's like, do we ever step back and think that maybe that's uncomfortable for them? Mm -hmm. it, not even depending on culture, but maybe that's just uncomfortable for the person. Like even, and I'm sure in Canada, um, I can't speak to it, but I'm sure um, there's different dialects even just yeah. among everybody. And so I know like us being more Pacific Northwest, I don't know if that's what you guys call it up there, but I, we're, we're in the Pacific Northwest over here. We talk really fast and um, not saying everybody does that, but it's a thing. And like slower, some people might speak slower in different parts. I know of even the United States and, but it's not because they're dumb. And like, as you said, it could be a respect thing and choosing their words and actually respecting you. I think that is such, such a, a something I've never even considered. Mm -hmm. And um, now that you say it, it's like, oh, light bulbs. Um, I think it's, I think it's beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. I think we could all take something from that. Mm -hmm. What are 
So I want to talk about culturally committed specifically. You are the founder. Mm -hmm. um, but before, before we dig into that, this idea came from somewhere. So can you tell me about your most transformative day? Ooh, sure. So, <laughs> so, so as I said, I've been doing this work in First Nations community for the past eight years. Um, and over that time, I'm really grateful for the relationships that have blossomed, the trust that has grown, um, and the generosity people have shown me, the kindness people have shown me, because it's really informed my practice and helped me to understand how I can be providing services that were safer. And so um, relationships are super important in First Nations communities, not being like a, you know, I'm not just a clinician. I'm not just a clinician. I, I really try to integrate myself in other areas of the community. I go see the children at school. I help unload the dishwasher. I help pack good food boxes. I have tea with the elders. It really is about relationship. And um, so because I have these relationships with community, oftentimes people come to see me not for oral health services, but because they just want somebody to listen, somebody who understands this uh healthcare world. And so what was happening is uh, people started coming to see me to share incidences that they were experiencing accessing services in other settings. And um, some of these disclosures really troubled me, really troubled me. Um, and so I'm, I'm always ready to listen. I My ears are wide open. Um, but also, I recognize that change doesn't happen if there are no complaints submitted. And so I'd always offer people if they wanted support with that pathway of submitting complaints to regulators, or if they even wanted me to help facilitate a conversation with that provider to just let them know what they were doing was causing harm or discomfort. Um, but almost nobody ever wanted to go that route. And so um, I don't know what your understanding is around the Canadian residential school system, but residential schools were uh, the system that was, they were they were in effect for over a hundred years. Um, children were removed from their families against, against the wills of the families. Many children underwent incredible harm in the residential school system, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, medical abuse, medical experimentation. And so um, in residential schools, quietness was survival. And so you didn't complain. And that was something that was modeled to the children, because if you spoke up, it could be dangerous for you. And so now the legacy of that is that people don't want to complain. People will endure uncomfortable situations. And then once they're out, out of that situation, um, they might not go back and access those services again. And so because of that, uh, there's a lot of First Nations people that have fairly serious um, oral health and overall health situations happening. And there a lot of people really are in, um, in a bad way. So they really need support getting the, the help that they need. So people weren't submitting the complaints and I understood why, but it really troubled me. And so I started thinking about um, how I had these amazing relationships with people and people were starting to share with me how, how they were receiving my work and things that I was doing that were creating discomfort and how I could adapt my practice to be more culturally safe. And so I started recognizing that I was receiving this incredible mentorship that was really 
guiding my practice. And I started to think, you know, there's so many providers out there that really care. And if providers knew that they were doing things that were causing harm, they would change them, but they just don't know. And so I started thinking like, how could we create this opportunity for mentorship for other providers? And that was really what inspired the idea for Culturally Committed. But it was actually a day in 2019 uh, where every single patient that I saw that day disclosed to me an incident, a recent incident in um, accessing services that were not culturally safe. Some of the incidents that were described to me were very troubling and nobody wanted to complain. Nobody wanted to take any sort of um, any, they didn't want to do anything about it. They just wanted to talk to me about it. And that day, hearing every disclosure, it was kind of like a brick to the head moment for me, um, where I just felt like I could not do nothing for one more second. I just couldn't. So uh, that day I, I reached out to one of my one of my most cherished mentors, his name is Dan Elliott. He's from Staminas First Nation. He's a native drug and alcohol counselor, uh, medicine man, um, sweat, sweat keeper. He's just an amazing person. And I sat down with him in his office and I explained to him like all these things that I was experiencing in my practice and this idea that I had, um, but really struggling to, I just didn't know if it was my place as a, as a white woman was this my place to be moving this work forward? And so that day, Dan said to me that what First Nations people needed were allies who were willing to stand up and speak out. And he told me that um, I was being called to do something and it was my responsibility to listen to that. So that day was the beginning of a tornado of creating and, and uh, yeah, I just, I haven't looked back. It's been um, an incredible amount of work, but so fulfilling and meaningful. So no regrets. Um, I'm very grateful to be part of something that's really evolving into something very beautiful and open-hearted. It's brave of you to admit, quite frankly, in my opinion, that it's like, am I even the right person to be doing this? And then also having the bravery to be like, well, maybe, maybe not, but I'm going to try and I'm going to do it anyways. You, There was this door way off there and it was like a, a door that really needed to be continued to be built. Like it was just barely a frame. Even if that, there was just board sitting <laughs> and, and you built it. I do want to go back to the assimilation schools. That's not just a Canada thing. Um, I know, and I haven't done a whole bunch. I've, of course, I've lost documentaries on it. I know because I'm in Washington, um, just five minutes over the Oregon-Washington border, grew up in Oregon. There were several of those schools here in Oregon and Washington and people that the people that I don't want to say attended those schools, I want to say survived those schools. Yeah. Um, they're still alive. Yes. They are still alive. This is not just a thing that was in the past. This was, these people are still alive. And so it's not like, oh, people are they just were told that this is what it's like. So that's why they're being, it's like, no, this, this is people with, they literally survived this directly. Yeah. And the other thing is in Canada where you're at, wasn't the last school like that? You, I think you had mentioned to me previously closed in just 1996, 1996. Yeah. So it's pretty unbelievable. And so when I talk about, um, you know, I really carry that with me in my practice because 
my patients saw the saw the dentist dentist at the residential school. Mm-hmm. And it was very the the disclosures that I've heard are very troubling. And so I I carry that very close when I'm seeing them. And so like an example of an adaptation to my practice when I'm seeing somebody who's a residential school survivor is asking them, do you want me to leave the door open or closed? And it seems like such a simple thing, but it is everything to somebody who has experienced trauma in a medical setting to have the power to say, I don't want the door closed. That's okay. But I think in Western society, we think that everybody wants this high level of privacy and, you know, like we're doing them a favor by closing that door. But for some people, closing that door does not feel safe. Mm-hmm. So that is something that's so simple that people can do is just ask, do you want the door opened or closed? And I would say probably 60% of the people in my practice do not want the door closed. Wow. Wow. And that goes to um, like I've taken, I, and I know some wonderful uh, one in particular CE provider that um, she, she, she does an entire course on trauma informed care. And a lot of times we think of that as perhaps an, like an abuse victim, whether it's mental, physical, um, human trafficking, um, rape, things like that. And so there's certain things like even just getting near their mouth, it, you know, and so it's like, oh yeah, we need to ask, we need to be aware. There's a much bigger awareness there though. And I think that that's, that is where you are going with that. But the larger point of this is, is that this sort of like how we spoke about racism, how we spoke about the the feelings that came. This is not in the past. This is not a hundred, 200 years ago. This is, this is now. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm, which is again, why I'm so happy to be speaking with you. Um, culturally committed. You are the founder what is it and what is the purpose? I think you have a couple purposes. (laughs) So the purpose of Culturally Committed is to create a space where non-Indigenous health and service providers can come to learn about cultural safety directly from Indigenous mentors and elders. And so um, we are a membership, so people can join our membership and we offer bi-weekly live learning sessions. So once a month, we host a community call. The community call is a time when our membership can bring forward questions to our mentors who support this work. And so we have five amazing mentors who join us on the call. Um, Dan Elliott, who I previously mentioned, um, Kim Good, she's from Sanemo First Nation. She says she's a residential school survivor turned thriver. And she is a powerhouse. Uh, I just love her so much. Um, we have Ethel Henry, who's actually a dental hygienist. She is from the Lake Wata people, which is uh, mid-island, mid-Vancouver Island. We have a gentleman named Bo Wagner. He is mixed ancestry, Irish, Coast Salish, and OG Cree, and he is a traditional dugout canoe carver. He's just the kindest most gentlest, most amazing man. And then George Harris Jr. Um, he is from Staminas First Nation and he works in the realm of a child and family care. So he kind of is a connection between um, the Ministry of Children and Family and children who are in care in the nation. So he really helps to bring those important cultural pieces to children who are in care in, in non-traditional homes. So these are the mentors who join us on the community call. And some of the questions that come forward are so um, 
innocent people just really want to know the little things. For example, one of the questions that came forward on our first community calls was, what does it mean when people raise their hands? And that's something that we see a lot in Coast Salish culture. And so hands raised is like ingratitude, but it also means I respect you. And so if you look at our culturally committed logo, you can see that the figure is actually like somebody with their hands raised. And it's really an honoring, like it means that I honor you. And so that's something we really wanted uh, our we wanted people to feel that when they saw the logo. So community calls are one part of our membership. The other part is a monthly workshop that is facilitated by uh, an expert in the area of cultural safety and humility. And so every month that happens, right now we are working with Jen Smith of Tlobiti's First Nation. So she, her next workshop is in a couple of weeks and it's exploring the Indian Act. And the Indian Act is basically legislation that was created even before Canada was a country that was really intended to um, expedite the process of assimilation. Um, and obviously it wasn't successful because First Nations people are still here and they're still thriving, but that legislation is still in place in Canada. And it, yes. And uh, it's, yeah, it's just shocking, actually, to learn about the Indian Act and the impacts of it, how it marginalize, it continues to marginalize, but here we are still with this, with this legislation in place. It's actually just kind of mind boggling. So understanding why that is and how it continues to marginalize. So that's the second part is the workshops. Um, also with our membership, our members get access to some physical identifiers that they can incorporate into their practice. Uh, one of the pieces of information that came forward is how uh, physical symbols can provide a lot of safety for First Nations people. And so all of our providers, they receive a provider's package when they sign up. So in in the package, they get a window decal. So, so clients can see it as soon as they approach the office that this is a culturally committed provider. Uh, they receive a lapel pin that they can wear and and Kim Good of Sunema was the one that actually recommended that we do that um, because she said it can really be grounding for somebody who's experienced harm to see that Indigenous style, that logo. It really can provide feelings of safety for somebody who's feeling fear. Yeah, so those are the biggest parts of our membership. Um, and the people who have joined, we're really becoming diverse because it seems like there are a lot of people that are seeking this learning and they just didn't really have a place to access it. So we do have dentists and hygienists and dental therapists. We have physicians, we have nurses, um, but we also have people who don't work in healthcare at all that are just seeking learning. We have people who work in publishing, people who work in finance, people who work in regulation. So um, we've really turned into this diverse collective, but everybody really brings that really sincere sense of caring to this work. People are very invested in learning what they can do to increase safety for First Nations people. So I think it's pretty amazing. So do I. <laughs> so do I. You saw a need and you were called to fill it the best way you knew how. Um, tell me about just because I get a lot of questions and I see a lot of questions about, well, what can I do, you know, beyond just working private practice? you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, well, here's all these things. And then people are like, okay, well, I want to do this, but how do I do it? So what I'm getting at is, is again, you had to start somewhere. So what, what were kind of your biggest challenges in just like, okay, well, I have to start somewhere, but then what also came easy? Ooh, the biggest challenge for me is I really am a, a clinician. I've, I've been a dental therapist for 
21 years. So I had no idea how to create this space. Um, and I am so fortunate to have some amazing people in my life that have really helped me navigate the how to's. Uh, the day that I decided to create Culturally Committed, my son, who was 13 at the time, he, I said, I don't even, how do I even get a domain? And he said, mom, it's really easy. You just, you just go on GoDaddy and then you make your website on Wix. And I was just like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> so those pieces of navigating how to build the framework, it's been such a learning curve. Oh my goodness. And I'm really actually very proud of how it's come together. I'm really proud of our website. We have some amazing photography on there that was uh, shared with me by my friend, Ryan Dawson, who's from Dawadino First Nation. He's just an amazing photographer. So those were the hard parts. Um, for me, the easy part, even though it's tricky, it, it it is tricky navigating these conversations sometimes, but really the easy part for me is the relationship piece because I deeply care. I, I really do. Um, and I am not afraid to be vulnerable. And I, because I really think in this work, we have to be vulnerable. We have to, we have to acknowledge what we do not know. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm vulnerable and share what I do not know, it might make other people feel safe in that. Um, and also other people might be experiencing the same things I am. They might be have the same unknowing around many different things. So in our community, we share those moments of things that we did not know because it just creates opportunity for learning and growth for all of us. And it's a safe place to do that. So um, that part, vulnerability is, it's not always easy, but I lean into that and I'm, and I'm happy to be that, that person that's modeling that behavior. And it, it, it's, I like how you say that I, I am a clinician and I love relationships, but then there was like, the business weird stuff but again you figure it out you I mean even if you have to go to YouTube and like how do I do this <laughs> but that's how bad you wanted it right you yeah. figured it out and that's I, I'm gonna say it a million times it's beautiful I, yeah it's just I I applaud that hugely I that's probably not even proper <laughs> so you mentioned culturally Culturally committed is not just for providers that work directly with First Nations people. It can be anyone um, who who wants to learn, um, even if they don't even think that they might treat somebody, you know, maybe in that space. But you never know. Right. So you, you kind of touched on that. Um, is there anything else you want to say about that? You don't have to. Yeah, sure. So. The way that we frame our, our membership, there's actually two levels of membership. There's a professional membership. And so that's for people who do provide direct patient care or have the one-on-one -on -one relationships with First Nations people, Indigenous people. Um, but there is also our active ally membership. And that is for people who are just seeking the learning. So people who are part of our active ally membership, they don't necessarily need the lapel pin. They don't necessarily need a window deckle, but they are there because they want to participate in learning. Um, reconciliation is all of our responsibility. And so to move the work of reconciliation forward, we all need to be actively participating. It is an ongoing process that will, it's generational work. Mm -hmm. So people are looking for those resources to learn what they can do to be active in the pursuit of reconciliation. And um, there was, uh, in Canada, there was, uh, it was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. 
And so, uh, which was guided by Senator Murray Sinclair, who's just an amazing, amazing, brilliant man. Um, but one of the things that Jen Smith explained in her workshop with us is that, that Murray Sinclair was very careful to not define what reconciliation is, because it is different for every person. So not to pigeonhole ourselves and use our professional brains to grab on to what we're supposed to be doing and doing it. It really is different for every person. And we all have different things that we can be contributing to the work of reconciliation. So it really is open minds, open hearts, awareness, reflection, and learning what we can do to be good allies. Again, I think that is beautiful. Um, you make great points. Um, you've certainly educated me. I can probably, I could probably sit here and ask you questions all day and pick your brain all day. Um, <laughs> right now, I want to ask you this, and I know you've kind of given me some, some examples, but can you give me one example? And I know there's probably many that is something you learned. And I know you gave one example earlier. Um, that someone who is not a First Nations person or from a certain space um, that they might do that is actually highly disrespectful in the community you serve. And I know you talked about giving time when you yeah. speak. Um, is there any other sort of example you you might have up your sleeve? Mm, yeah, so just with just... Well, it's it kind of lends back to that trauma informed care piece um, is giving people control of their appointments. So um, some people who come to see me, that is really the first step in a very difficult journey for them. And not everybody is in the same place. So uh, oftentimes when I invite people into my clinic room, um, I'll invite them to sit if they want to sit and I don't tell them where to sit. And I've noticed that many people don't want to sit in the dental chair, right? It's just starting that relationship. Relationships are so important in First Nations culture. Um, and so my first appointment might not have anything to do with dentistry. It's just about building comfort. I think too, when somebody's experienced trauma, their brain is telling them if they've experienced trauma in a dental room, that that is not a safe place mm -hmm. and they might be feeling triggered. And so I really feel a responsibility to help to rewrite that script in their brain. And I know that I can help them with that by demonstrating that it is a place of safety, by offering a place of safety. So somebody might come in the first time and they might not even sit in the dental chair and that's okay. And I know it's a really tough pill to swallow for those who work in private practice because productivity is so important, but the upside is that we are helping to create capacity in people that really need support. So we might not be achieving that much in the first appointment on our billings, um, but we are supporting that person in a really profound way. And so I feel really proud of the people who I've helped find comfort in the chair and people that are coming now every six months to get their exams, to get those debridements, who are getting their work done, who have come from a place of, you know, a pretty serious um, oral health state to a place of health. And, and along with that health is pride good feelings about self. 
So it's pretty amazing when we can help support somebody in that way. Um, but it really is important that we slow down. I think that that can even be pulled back and used as even a broader brush. When we think about little kiddos, their little happy visit, their very first time at the dental office, a lot of times we're okay with like, here's the mirror and here's then let's run the polisher on your, and it's like, we're, we tend to be okay with that or someone, you know, but then let's take someone with, they had a bad dental experience um, or they just have anxiety being there, they're embarrassed or whatever. A lot of times it's like, no, sorry, we've got to get this done. And, it, but it's kind of like, at what cost? Like, yeah. no, no offense. I know in, in the States, dentistry and healthcare is a business. I get that. That's, I don't like the saying, but it is what it is. But it is. But sometimes, and I'd argue most of the time, all of the time, um, the the person you are treating that does put that money in the pocket and does pay, you know, the provider's bills and the lights on, that person matters. Um, and I think that just being very, sometimes just being okay with, you know what, we didn't even get everything done. Or like you said, we didn't even get to sitting in the dental chair, the treatment chair. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's, that's gotta be okay. Yeah. I mean, again, in the States, dentistry is a business. You have to make money, but yeah. it's, I think it's important to step back and I'm going to age myself here and I'm just going to go down a tangent, but if anyone <laughs> has ever seen the movie um, with Robin Williams, Patch Adams based on a real doctor, uh, he went in when he was in middle school, he got in trouble. He almost got kicked out because he was treating these patients as humans instead of being like, well, the patient here, oh, this person, blah, 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 blah. He was like, wait, that's a person. And he would go in afterwards and get in trouble for it. You need to stay out of the hospital, you know, um, for actually going in and being like, well, how are you doing? Yeah. And, you know, things like that. And so it's like, it was when I was still working clinically full time, it was one of the big things that um, if it was someone with anxiety or someone who was embarrassed because they hadn't been for 20 years because as a child, they had a situation those were the people I was like, yes, give me those people. Yeah. Um, that was, that's just me. A lot of times that's more time consuming, more effort. It's hard. It's tough. You get frustrated. I get that. But I think that sometimes we do have to take a step back. And even though we do have to make numbers to pay the bills, mm-hmm. people's feelings count. If you want them to yeah. come back and if you really, truly want them to be healthy, because a healthy mouth is a healthy body. Mm-hmm. you kind of kind of bite the bullet there. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I am. Yeah. And acknowledging too, that creating comfort for your patients will lead to more successful appointments down the road. It really is part of the process. And that's actually what your, your words remind me too of, you know, some of the things that I see when somebody is, has experienced trauma or is anxious in the chair, sometimes in the chair that might look like a difficult patient, right? So that mm-hmm. person is always wanting to be sitting up. The person's always asking for the suction. The person's like gagging and phlegming and it's kind of like, come on. But yeah. really, you know, taking, putting my ego aside, recognizing that I'm maybe getting a little bit triggered by this person and just taking a breath and stepping back and really being curious with myself and and really contemplate like what really is going on here? Mm-hmm. It, it probably is way more complex than what I am seeing. So just having, having some patience for those people, having patience for those patients, <laughs> because they just, what that's what they really just need is to know that they are safe. Yeah. 
and we and of course like is we kind of you know memes and things like like we poke fun because there are some people that are just difficult right there just are and it's and it does get frustrating but it's not all of them and um i think just kind of you know yes we poke fun because we have to you know stay sane ourselves and place humor on but sometimes it's like whoa is this is this a bigger situation than just being difficult i think i think you hit the nail on the head there um i do want to let everybody know that your website is culturallycommitted.com And you are also culturally committed is also on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, the resource hub on the website with your video library and blog has awesome information. I encourage anybody to go check that out. Um, Do do you want to say anything to that? Yeah. So if people kind of want to get a taste of the work that we're doing, we do have some videos posted that we've done with some of the mentors. So that's available on the website. And it's it's actually just, we're on YouTube. So you can link those videos there. I want to acknowledge because I have, there are things that I've learned since I've created those videos that I would do differently. So just acknowledging that I'm still on my learning journey. And there was a part of me that's like, oh, I want to take them down, but I'm keeping them up because it's important for people to know that we learn and change. That's okay. So if you're curious about the mistakes I've made, you can go watch my videos on on YouTube. (laughs) Uh, The one with Dan Elliott specifically, um, there's a lot of information in there related to trauma-informed care for First Nations people. So that's a really great one to check out. And Ethel Henry too, she has a video on there and she's the registered dental hygienist who supports this work. So she's also a great uh, resource for for your audience. Um, they, They might get some really good tips there. So that's a great one. I love that. Wrapping it up, anything else that you would just want to get out there? Yeah. So um, of course, we always want to grow our membership. We want to grow our impact. But if people are ready to take that step, I just really encourage people to lean into the work of pursuing cultural safety. Really, it it really is a reflective practice. It's ongoing. So that self-awareness piece, that self-curiosity piece, um, just be open, just be open. And yeah, that's all I have to say, I guess that I I'll take it Um, (laughs) for me to sum it up is humans. You don't know what you don't know. And for me, Kim has opened you has opened my eyes to this fact in a huge way. Um, Now, on the other hand, my Angelo, she has a quote that I use all the time. When you know better, you do better. And I think that quote, thank you, Ms. Angelo, <laughs> describes you to a T. And and I think it also describes a, a lot of, you know, providers. And so, but I, when I now think of it, I, I, I think of you. And I think that's exactly what you're trying to accomplish with Culturally Committed. Um, I want you to know personally that I applaud you. I am profoundly thankful for the work you do and the difference you are, you're trying to make. So you say you're not perfect and that you even admit that. I, I hope everyone like listens to this video all the way through. Cause this is, this is, you have just opened my eyes. I am thrilled we connected and that you took the time to chat today. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and I, I hope as it was for me is for me that this is kind of given a perspective that you may have not heard before and that you can even again, take back broader just in your everyday treating of anybody. 
Um, so those who tuned in and for you, Kim, I appreciate the privilege of your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Today's RDH Dental Hygiene Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 